last words. Some who have spoken theirs have been fortunate enough to be able to clearly think through exactly what they wanted to say. While others never dreamed that, yeah, go ahead and supersize that would be theirs. And the countless number of last words have been spoken throughout history. Some have been memorable, while most have been forgettable. Some have been very serious, others have been humorous. Some have been obvious and some have been ironic. Some have been cynical and some have been inspiring. On the lighter side, Humphrey Bogart, the famous actor, chose these words to be his last. I never should have switched from scotch to martinis. On the naive or more arrogant side, another actor by the name of John Barrymore chose these words to be his last. Die? I should say not, dear fellow. No Barrymore would succumb to something such as conventional, conventional as that. On the cringy side, convicted murderer James Donald French said to press journal, journalists who had gathered to see his execution this. He said, hey, y'all, how about this for tomorrow's headline? French fries. <laughs> yeah, that one's bad, isn't it? On the inspiring side are those famous last words of Revolutionary War spy, uh, Nathan Hale. My only regret is I have but one life to lose for, for my country. Now, the countless number of last words that have been spoken, though, none have been of greater significance than those last words spoken by Jesus in his final breath. I want you to listen to his last words as recorded by his dear friend John, who was at the foot of the cross to witness his execution. We read these words in John chapter 19 and verse 28 through 30. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge on it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And no doubt those who were present to hear those last words heard a statement of resignation. It's finished. It's over. I'm done. For those who had been annoyed by the turmoil that Jesus had stirred up, think about the Roman authorities. I'm absolutely confident that there was a sigh of relief that the whole thing was finally over. And for those individuals who had been threatened by his popularity, think about the Jewish religious leaders. I imagine when there was this moment of a sense of accomplishment that they had finally gotten Jesus out of the picture. And for those who had been at war with God, think about all the evil beings in the heavenly realms. I have no doubt there was joyous celebration as they listened to Jesus breathe his last. And for those individuals who had given up everything to follow Jesus, there was just this overwhelming sense of disappointment in seeing Jesus fall short of restoring Israel to her rightful place. And on that horrific Friday, it is finished, could not be heard in any other way than a sad word of a defeat. But then came Sunday, the Sunday when Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, saw the huge stone that enclosed Jesus' tomb rolled away. 
The Sunday when Peter and John ran to the tomb and saw burial clothes laying in an empty grave. Sunday when angels said, he is risen, he is not here. Sunday when Jesus appeared to two despondent disciples on their way back to Emmaus, interrupted their conversation and began to explain to them, I am the fulfillment of everything that you've read about in scripture. Sunday when Jesus appeared to his disciples who were afraid, who were confused, who were hiding in a room and he said I invite you to see and touch my scarred resurrected body if Jesus didn't come out of that grave having overcome death then his final words would have been nothing more than a sad word of defeat and Easter would be nothing more than a day for us to have an excuse to wear pastel colors and hunt for candy and hidden Easter eggs the Apostle Paul makes that very clear to us as he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17. If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. But then he goes on to proclaim in verse 20, but Christ has, inde has indeed been raised from the dead. And that means that Jesus' last word was not one of defeat. It was one of triumph. That it is finished is a cry of victory. And what is translated as it is finished in the original language, it's just one word to tell STI. It's an important word. It is a word that gives us incredible insight to the comprehensiveness of Jesus' victory. Tetelestai is a word that a servant would speak to his master when he had completed a task that had been assigned to him or her. I, I can still remember the days when my boys would come to me and they would say something like this, all finished, Dad, in reference to cleaning up their bathroom. But, but I quickly realized that what they meant when they spoke those words were, we are all finished. And I knew that because I'd go into the bathroom and I'd still find wet towels on the floor and toothpaste residue in the sink. They, they didn't mean the task of cleaning up the bathroom is all finished because it wasn't. You see, only those who completely finish the task that has been entrusted to them have the right to speak the words, it is finished. And Jesus did. He completed the task that had been entrusted to him to carry out the mission of God by defeating the evil one. The, the one who brought sin and death in the world, the one who created separation between humanity and God, the one who struck fear in the hearts of all people. The Hebrew writer speaks of Jesus' complete victory in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Now, does this mean that Satan is no longer active? Of course not. Obviously, Satan continues to work as hard as he possibly can to keep people from responding to Jesus, for tempting those who have faith to walk away from their faith by creating pain and sorrow and suffering in this world. By no means was Satan finished just because Jesus said, it is finished. Well, we don't need anyone to tell us this. 
we see the reality with our own two eyes. We didn't need scripture to inform us of this fact, but I'm thankful that scripture is honest about this reality of what life is truly like. And Paul, for one, speaks about the ongoing presence and influence of Satan in, the, in this world. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Satan's still playing the game, but that doesn't change the fact that the game he is playing has already been decided. He lost. Jesus won. It is finished. And one day, Satan is going to feel the full weight of his defeat. Listen to what awaits Satan as described by John in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And until that day comes, we still have unfinished business to take care of. You say, well, what is that? Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. In Romans chapter 16, we read these words in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Yes, Paul's talking about what's going to happen to Satan in the future, but he's also describing what needs to happen to Satan right now. All of Satan's efforts need to be crushed right now. By who? And Paul says they need to be crushed by God, but under your, the church's, feet. Say, how do you do that? Well, the broader context of Romans chapter 16 sheds tremendous insight. The, The chapter begins with recognition of followers of Jesus Christ who had come together to work diligently to advance the purposes of God. As we read that chapter, we're reminded that when we as followers of Jesus Christ come together in unity, and we share our time and our talents and our resources, Satan takes a beating. He he takes a beating every time we come together and we hand out groceries to our neighbors who are hungry, and we do it in the name of Jesus Christ. He, He takes a beating every time you make the decision to pray for and pray with a coworker in the name of Jesus Christ. He takes a beating every time we make the decision, we're going to befriend those who are forgotten, we're going to adopt orphans, we're going to fight for justice in the name of Jesus Christ. And nothing causes Satan to feel the sting of defeat more so than when a person decides to place their faith fully in Jesus Christ as we witnessed this morning in Zoe's decision and as we witnessed on Thursday night with Arison's decision. In those moments, Satan takes a beating. He is crushed. And over this past year, a year of disease, a year of economic hardship, a year of political division, a year of death and injustice. It has certainly appeared at times that evil is winning, but the reality is that's just a skirmish and a war that's already been won by Christ. You see, the harm that Satan is doing and has done, ultimately, God is going to use for his good. 
We see evidence of this all around us. It's easy to point to. This past year, we've seen many, many people come together and make tremendous sacrifices to be able to take care of other people. God's used that for good. This past year, as life has slowed us down in ways that we never really wanted, God's used that for good. It's brought some of our families closer together. And for others of us, it's given us time to catch our breath and reset our priorities. And there's been good that's taken place because God's alive and he's at work. This past year, there have been moments in which many of us, because of what we've seen going on around us, finally came to the conclusion, I can't do life on my own. I need God. And we've renewed our commitment to God in prayer in a way that we haven't in a long, long time. And there have been people, yes, there have been people who have made the decision to give their lives to Jesus. In a year like the one we've just faced, one of the most difficult years of our lifetimes, there has been so much to celebrate because Jesus Christ is alive. Amen. And if each of us who are followers of Jesus Christ will maintain the spirit of the Apostle Paul, I'm confident that we are going to see God do so many more good things in the days and the years to come. What was the attitude of Paul? I want you to listen to what he says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of Jesus. You see, like Paul, we have unfinished business to take care of. Our business is to testify. Our business is to witness, as we've been talking about over the past several weeks, and we'll continue next week. Our business is to tell people the good news of Jesus' victory. And that's what I hope you'll leave here doing, committed to doing uh, this very week, is telling people the good news that Jesus Christ is alive, that we serve a risen Savior. But I want to share with you another way that that particular word, to tell us die, was used. That was a word that was stamped on legal documents when a prisoner had completed his term or when a debtor had finally paid off their debt in full. And so when Jesus proclaimed those words from the cross, it is finished. It was a declaration that he had paid in full, paid completely in full our sin debt by giving up his life. And he not only paid our sin debt, but he set us free. Free from what? Well, you go back to the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13 and 14. You are dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Satan would love for you to believe that he still has power over you. But the truth is, he has none. He, he's been stripped. He has been disarmed. The only power that he has over you is the power that you choose to give him. Now, how do we choose to give power, power to Satan? We give him power when we make the decision to live in shame rather than forgiveness. Shame keeps us hidden. Shame convinces us that we have nothing to offer God. Shame kills the spirit. And there is no reason for you to live in shame. We have been forgiven. 
every sin nailed to the cross, no longer dead but alive to Christ, free to live again. Amen. Free to live again and to live a life of purpose. And one of the most important purposes that we can live for is to do good, not evil. Paul again reminds us of this in verse 19 of Romans chapter 16. He, he starts that verse and says, I want you to be wise about what is good. And, and I want you to be innocent about what is evil. And it's in the very next verse that he goes on and says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See, Satan takes a beating also every time we make the decision to do what is right and say no to what is wrong. Every single time. Say, okay, I try, but it's really, really hard. I mean, there are just some things in my life that I can't seem to shake. I can't seem to get away from. I can't break free from these attitudes and these behaviors. Maybe for some of you it's something like laziness or selfishness or greed or gossip, and you're trying as hard as you possibly can to break free. I want to assure you this morning it is not your job to break free because you have been set free. You've been set free by Jesus Christ. Satan has been stripped of his power. Now, he can still tempt you, but he cannot hold you in bondage any longer. It is up to you. It's your choice. Do you want to live in freedom? Do you want to live in freedom? If you say, yes, I do, now sometimes that requires asking for the assistance of someone to help you kind of give up those sinful habitual habits or maybe to work through some stuff that's happened in your life from the past to get to a healthier place. But you have the power to live in freedom because the same power that raised Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ from the dead is a power that is available to you. We're reminded of this in Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19, 19 through 22. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. And God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. You see, there is nothing that we cannot overcome because the risen Christ is fighting at all times and always for our victory. And Jesus is the right one to help us because he did life perfectly. His cry, it is finished, it reminds us of this. Uh, let me explain. That word in the original language, it, it was used by, to really to describe what goes back to an Old Testament concept. The Old Testament, the, the priests were required to offer animal sacrifices to atone for the sins of people. But they couldn't offer just any animal sacrifice. They had to find one without spot or blemish. And when they had finally find that animal that met that requirement, that standard, they would declare to Telestai, faultless, perfect. That last word from Jesus is a reminder that he withstood the pressure of every single temptation that was thrown his way. And the writer of Hebrews, he speaks about this victory. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 15. Therefore, 
since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. It was through his thorough victory over temptation that made Jesus qualified to be the perfect sacrifice, the unblemished lamb for our sin. Paul goes on, he celebrates this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So the big question is, how should we respond to Jesus' victory? Jeff, I want to invite you to come up because I'm going to need your help here in just a moment. As Jeff's making his way up here, listen closely to these words from the Hebrew writer. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12 and verse 15. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. Have you ever been to a basketball or watched a basketball, on TV, a basketball game on TV? At a certain point, all of the crowd or, or a significant portion of the crowd just started to begin to sing together. I mean, just in one voice. They just, they just got so enthused and excited that they, they started to bust out in a song and, and they would sing this, this particular song. Not that song. Not, uh, you remember how we're ended. Not, 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 not that song. Not that song, Jeff. What's the chant? What's the chant at the end of the basketball game? Don't make me do this. All right, help me. Hey, hey, hey. Goodbye. All right, why do I want you to do that? What, let me ask you this. Basketball game, that happens. Crowd does that. When do they do that? They, do they do that at the start of the game? No. Okay. Uh, end of the first quarter, start of the second half, start of the fourth quarter. Not unless it's a blowout, right? You don't start that chant until victory is securely in hand. That's when you begin that chant. And why do they sing that song together? It's their way of saying, what? This is our team. <laughs> this is our house. This is our victory. And so they sing together. Here's the point. It's our time to sing. It's our time to sing. As the game has been decided, the victory has been won. It's our time to show our allegiance. It's our time to bring glory to God. We sing because the crucified Lamb of God is now the risen Christ. And so wherever you are, whether you're at home watching online or you're here present with us in person, I want to invite you to stand and get ready to sing. And as we sing this morning, I want to encourage you to sing like the victor you are. Don't hold back, but sing like a person who knows and believes that victory is in, is in hand. And know this, that as you sing... Satan cringes in the shame of defeat. And when you get done singing, 
and go from this place and do good because this too is our sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, verse 16. And don't forget to do good, to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God.